Our scripture reading for the sermon is from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Give your attention, if you would, to the reading of God's word. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed down to himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, Three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. <coughs> but Father, you have gathered us here, and again we sit before you. We have come to you as you have come to us this day by your invitation, so by your Spirit. Would you turn our hearts toward you that we may hear what you would speak? For you speak peace to your people. Speak that now, Lord, in the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. <coughs> if, you, uh, if you are joining us for a first time today, you're stepping into the middle of something. I think it's the middle. It's not the beginning and it's not the end, at least. We're in part 25. Uh, I had to check it, but part 25 of this series in Genesis. It started uh, quite a while ago. There was a break uh, to do some other things, and now we're back in this series. And, and what we are learning as we go is that there is a story. There is a, that there is something going on bigger than ourselves, uh, we, we see it spelled out and it unfolds uh, a piece at a time. 
like, like any good story, it unfolds one piece at a time. And we're going to come to another unfolding today. Last week, what we saw, if you were here, just, or just a, um, a ramp to today, if you weren't, is what we heard and saw in Genesis 17 is that God is faithful to keep his word. He is faithful to keep his word. And, and many of you here today really probably need to wrap your heads and hearts around that, that God is faithful to keep his word. But that's really not the point. That would be good, but let me up you one. Because God is faithful to keep his word even when we are not. That was last week's takeaway, I trust. God is faithful to keep his word, even when we are not. He steps into our doubts. And just real quickly, what we, what we saw last week is when he steps into our doubts, he does so in a very timely way. It's right on time. It may not be our time, but it's the perfect time that God shows up in our doubts. Timely, and he comes in person, and he comes with powerful words. We're going to see that again in a sense today in a surprising narrative uh, it's surprising. It's a, it's a remarkable story. Uh, you could do well, a, film, a filmmaker could do well with what's right here before us today. And what we're going to see, similar to last week, but beyond that, is we're going we're gonna to see that God bends over to reassure us in the face of our unbelieving hearts. He bends over to reassure us in the face of our unbelieving hearts. Another way to say that is <clears throat> God will take care of us. He always does what he says he will do. It's a narrative. It's actually a story with two scenes, scene one, scene two. The paragraph break gives you scene one and scene two. If you've got, you can note that <clears throat> as we read. <clears throat> but in those two scenes are really three lessons, one for Abraham, one for Sarah, and one for both of them. That's what we're going to uh, find as we watch this scene one and scene two unfold. A lesson for Abraham, one for Sarah, and one for them both. And I trust, <clears throat> as we go, a lesson or two for you and me. The first one is this. Abraham, in this setting begins to learn the beauty of doing all things for the pleasure of God. The beauty of doing all things for the pleasure of God. Now, that is a lesson that, he, that unfolds as the story unfolds. It starts with the visitor's arrival. That's who these, uh, apparently, <clears throat> the scene is set, verse 1, Abraham was sitting in the midday heat by the oaks of Mamre. That was outside of Hebron, a city, a village, in that land where we learn in chapter 13, if you wanted to flip back, you could see that in chapter 13, Abram, Abram at that point settles there. He has settled. He has stopped moving. He is a sojourner, traveler, all kinds of, of animals and goods. He was a fairly wealthy man, but they have dropped the tent, so to speak, in Hebron. He's still in the tent, though. He, he's not built homes. Uh, there were people that built homes. Job had built houses. 
Uh, Job's timing, we don't know exactly when, but people did build homes. But, but Abraham and his lot, his lot, his, his family, <laughs> I didn't intend that, uh, <clears throat> and his family and, and uh, following, his belongings had now stopped in Hebron. So in the heat of the day, we find Abraham apparently dozing at the door of the tent. Dozing uh, in the shade makes sense in that time. Uh, all the things had been done, the morning chores, everything that they did. So apparently there's a break in the day around noon or middle of the day. We don't see. They divided. They didn't have clocks. You know, they had morning, afternoon, and evening. That's kind of how things were organized. But in the middle of the day, it was appropriate and common for some rest to be had in the shade and to avoid uh, the, the real heat of the day. Uh, these are goatskin tents uh, with a flap. They didn't have zippers or highfalutin things. It was just a flap that would tie. But in the middle of the day, they would open the flap for a breeze to flow through the tent, this midday breeze. Um, when it was, uh, depending on what that breeze was, they could drop or to hold in warmth in other times of the year or to open the flap. So Abraham is likely at the door of the tent where an owner would be to not only get some rest in the shade, but to guard the contents of the tent. And apparently he dozed off. It doesn't say that, but it reads as if he had because something surprising happens on quick notice. It's not necessary to read that these three visitors just appeared, like from nowhere. It's more likely that they, they move the same way any others move, although we're going to find their identity is uh, certainly unique. But regardless of how and when they got there, there was a point in which Abraham becomes aware that they're there, and he sees three men standing. They have stopped moving, and they have, they have approached, and there's some distance between the, the gate, the door to the tent, and these three visitors because Abraham then runs to meet them. He runs to meet them, and then he bows to the earth, it says. And uh, don't be fooled when you read that text, and he addresses them as Lord. Don't be fooled because that was a common address. Apparently, he could tell from their appearance that these were, these were visitors worthy of honor. Now, the fact is, in that day and time, you honored every guest. Every guest, every visitor was treated with more dignity than, than we would even imagine in our day. When somebody knocks on our door, uh, we don't greet them quite the same way, typically. We, we rarely run and offer meals. Well, sometimes we do, but if we don't know them, uh, it's unlikely that we invite them in uh, to our house and, and feed them right off the bat. But that's what we see here. He granted them respect. He, he addressed the leader as my Lord, small l. Now, if you'll go back and look, there's another Lord in the text, right? Verse 1, what we read is, the Lord appeared, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's our English Bible's way of translating and referring to the name, the personal name 
of the personal God who, who revealed himself as I am who I am, Yahweh. But Abraham doesn't know this yet. He refers to him as Lord, small L. That was a typical greeting of someone. In fact, Sarah refers to Abraham as Lord <laughs> a little bit later in this passage. So when he says, uh, when he addresses him as Lord, he doesn't know who it is. We know something as the readers that he doesn't. The, the writer is giving us some information, kind of like that creative film producer, who writer, director, who gives the audience some, some clues about the story that has just, is going to unfold. You know something as the audience that, that they don't yet. And so we're supposed to ask the question, <clears throat> why has the Lord returned? Uh, if, you, if you remember back to chapter 16, we, there was this grand encounter where, where it is the Lord who is meeting with Abraham. And as that scene ends, it is on a note of hope and, and, and movement and promise. The son to come has been named Isaac. Abraham, kings will come from you. Kings will come from Sarah. And from your son Isaac, kings will come. I mean, it sounds like, in a sense, that the story has been set in motion. So why is the Lord back? We're supposed to be wondering that. We're going to see this story now unfold when Abraham jumps into action. He, he, if you, you saw that, he, he runs to, to Sarah. He goes into the tent and says, we get busy. we got things to do. Three, six, uh, six she is of... of of grain. We're going to produce. Uh, we, need, we need yogurt. We need, we need milk. And I'm going to find this, uh, our, our guy in the field and we're going to prepare a meal. And that is after he has said to the, you remember what he said to the visitors? Let me, let me get a morsel of food for you. It was a protocol in those days that whatever you offered was one thing, but whatever you provided was way, way beyond that. That was the norm. And so let me bring you a morsel of food translates into a, several hours worth of preparation. How long does it take to, to butcher a calf and to cook? And to, I, I don't, I've never done that. Uh, but it takes a while to even from scratch to, to make the rest of the meal. But when you add all that together... Um, Abraham leaps into this. Uh, some of it is Bedouin tradition and protocol. But Abraham sets before us a, a, a grand and beautiful picture of hospitality multiplied. A lavish hospitality for these still unknown guests. We're going to learn... As I said, we know something that he doesn't. And we're going to learn in chapter 19 that not only is one of those three the Lord, two of those are angels. That becomes evident in chapter 19, which may be why the writer of Hebrews tells us, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it.
The action slows. <clears throat> Abraham is standing by watching them, them now eat this fine fare, this display of lavish hospitality. And he is standing to the side as they eat, ready to wait on them if anything else is needed. When that's interrupted, it may be that they finished that meal. It may be that they got halfway through that meal. But at some point, <clears throat> the thing shifts. Everything shifts with a question. You know, sometimes, sometimes a dinner conversation will turn on a question. <clears throat> It'll go in a direction you didn't see it. And this one goes in a direction Abraham could not have predicted. Because he still doesn't know who he's eating. But he hears this. He hears these words, and now we get to Sarah's lesson because she enters the story. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now, that should have been a clue right there because how do these visitors know her name? Where is Sarah, your wife? It's, it's a startling question if only because the visitor knew her name. And it's a question similar to the question that God spoke in the garden to Adam when he said, where are you? Or the one <clears throat> to Abel, where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother, to Cain? Not so much a real question as an exposing question. Where is Sarah, your wife? And you wonder if some of the bells now begin to go off with Abraham. Because they know his wife's name. <clears throat> Sarah was behind the door of the tent. Abraham says, well, my wife is in the tent. She was right behind the door and heard that question. <clears throat> she was curious, no doubt, about these unknown visitors. And what she heard after that question were these words. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, for Abraham right now, <clears throat> he, he can connect the dots because these are the very words that he had heard a few verses back. A promise that your wife will have a son about this time next year as the story unfolds. I will return to you. He had heard those words only days ago. And now he knows. It's beginning to dawn. And now he really begins to discover <laughs> the delight and the beauty of doing all things for the pleasure of God. That meal that he had just served, now he knows that he, in ways that he could not have imagined, has provided richly and abundantly for the one who so richly and abundantly and way, way beyond our own abilities provides for us. But Sarah still has a lesson to learn. He is now beginning to connect the dots and recognize there's beauty and delight in, in doing all things for the pleasure of God. But Sarah's lesson is a little bit more complicated here. Because when she hears that promise, we read in verse 12, you can look and see, Sarah laughed to herself quietly 
apparently. She laughed to herself. It may be that it was all internal. It may be that she muffled her laugh with her, with her hands. But she heard that promise through the goatskin tent behind the door, heard the voices, and laughed. Now, we're supposed to ask, if you've read chapters 16 and 17 and now we're in 18, you're, one, you're supposed to ask, well, did Abraham not tell her? That's possible. I don't know what I would have done with that promise as a husband. I'm not sure. I think I would have told my wife. <laughs> but it may be that either he didn't tell her, but at least he did not convince her. She was not convinced, at least. This was either new news or old news that was less believable with every passing day. Because the older she got, the less likely this was going to be. Gordon Wenham is a writer, commentator, and <clears throat> about this passage and her laughter, he writes this. Sarah laughed, not out of cocky arrogance, because a life of long disappointment had taught her not to clutch at straws. I think some of you know just what that means. A life of long disappointment had taught her not to clutch at straws. We don't want <clears throat> to clutch at a straw that won't deliver <clears throat> when, we're, when we know we need something more solid than a straw. We don't want to, we want to bank on something that might happen. Especially when it comes to what do we place our lives in? What do we, where, do we, where do we trust our lives? That's a question that all of us ask. We've asked that somewhere along the way. We, we begin to ask that as adolescents, I think, maybe sooner. But at least by the time we're adolescents, we, we begin to ask the question, what can I trust? What promises can I trust? What worldview is, fits? What, what is the hope that I can count on? Where can I place myself? We know what it's like to be disappointed. And Sarah certainly knows what it's like. She's lived a long life of disappointment Wenham also says, hopelessness, not pride, underlay her unbelief. That's what spawned the laugh for the laughter. A hopelessness. Not a mocking pride, but you can almost hear kind of the, the note of wishing this could be true, but afraid to hope in a promise like that. God responds to that. <clears throat> Our text today ends on kind of a funny note. <coughs> funny in the sense of incomplete. When, <clears throat> when the Lord comes to her with this promise, and then she denies that she laughed, because she was frightened, we read. The Lord does respond to that. Did you hear how? 
with these words. No, but you did laugh. I think maybe that's the way to hear those words. No, no, Sarah, you did laugh. The Lord doesn't come through shaming her. It is a rebuke, but a mild rebuke. Heard in a way that expresses the hope of the promise without slamming her in her unbelief. You could translate, no, but you did laugh with this word. Sarah, you lied. And when, when he says, no, you did laugh, Sarah knows that she lied. The lesson that Sarah learns is that none of the secrets of our hearts stay hidden. The things underneath the surface of our lives are always and ultimately exposed. There's nothing that marks your life or mine as you have walked in and taken your seat and I've taken my place here that the Lord doesn't know the secrets of our hearts. The things that we have suppressed so much that we don't even recognize them anymore. We're afraid to. But the secrets of our hearts are there and they always come out. They're always exposed because we belong, we live our lives before one who knows us inside and out. There is no new news to the one who made this world, the one who made you, the one who created you, who knit you together in your mother's womb. There is no new news. He knew where Sarah was, and he knew that she had laughed. The writer of Hebrews pushes this a little further for us, too, that It's the Word of God that exposes these things. That is its work in our lives. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It discerns the thoughts and meditations of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's what God's Word does. It helps us see things about ourselves that we can't or choose not to see. But that's a step in another direction because God doesn't leave us exposed and naked and shameful, full of shame. Because Sarah learns Not only that the secrets of our hearts are always exposed, always known, always come into view from the living God, but she learns this. With this mild rebuke, she learns that God is more gracious with our doubts than we expect. Kids, have you ever been caught? Adults, have you ever been caught? (laughs) We've all been caught doing something, and the, and the idea of owning up to it or admitting it is a, can be a fearful thing because sometimes we're not sure what the consequences will be. We're not sure not only what the consequences will be, but sometimes we're not sure what damage that has done to a relationship. It's not always between child and parent. Sometimes it's between friends 
You wonder what will happen to the relationship now that she knows what I said about her. <laughs> it got back to her. It wasn't supposed to get back to her, but it got back to her. What damage has now happened? You see, we don't have enough examples in our own lives of people who are more gracious and with our failures than we expect. We can rightly expect sometimes retribution or punishment. And don't make mistakes. Our sins are punishable. <laughs> the guilt is real. The secrets that, that, that come out are worthy of condemnation. No doubt about that. But as this story plays out, what we're going to find, that there's a reason that God can be more gracious with our doubts or our failures or our shortcomings than we expect. Hold on to that. This is not the response of a God who watches from a distance, remaining coolly detached from his struggling creatures. That's not the God of the Scriptures. That's not the one that, who has gathered us here today. He is not coolly detached looking for our doubts to pounce upon them with righteous indignation, though he could. But to deal with us gently and graciously, because that is who he is. He is holy. He is righteous. He is gentle and merciful. And when you wrap those together, you find a glimpse of the picture of the king who will come from Abraham and Sarah and Isaac as that story plays out. You see, God wants Sarah to know that the one who reads her thoughts can open her womb, and he will. So Abraham has learned his lesson the pleasure of doing all things for the glory of God. I prepared a feast and it was the Lord himself. The work that you do in the workplace, in the marketplace, in the home, in the academy is for him. Doing all things for his pleasure, his delight, serving one another, loving him by serving one another, serving him by loving one another, doing all things for him. We also learn with Sarah that the secrets of our heart always come out. They can't be hidden. They can't be suppressed. They're real. And God is more gracious with those doubts than we expect. And here's the lesson for them both. And the reason that Sarah's sinful doubts are not crushing her is that the power of God always exceeds our expectations. In verse 14, it's God himself, the Lord, who says, is anything too hard for the Lord? In Jeremiah, he put it this way, is anything too hard for me? And that's how he wants you to hear it. Not some theological abstract idea that the God that we worship is all-powerful and there's nothing too hard for that God. What he wants us to hear is more personal than that. Nothing's too hard for me. In your life, nothing is too hard. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is beyond. The way to trans, one way to, you could rightly translate verse 14, is that there's no, there, could anything be too wonderful for God? 
anything too marvelous. And the God that we gather around, the one who's gathered us this morning, is a God of marvel. He is a God of wonder. He does wonderful things and marvelous things. And the, and the most marvelous of all is that the reason that Sarah's secret things that go on in her heart, her laughter in the face of God and laughing at the promises and, and an unwillingness to trust Him, all of those things are the things for which Christ, the one who comes from Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, and He comes into this world to swallow those things. And because He swallows my disobedience, my hesitant trust, he takes those things upon himself and pays the penalty so that, so that our Father in heaven can be gracious with us in our doubts. He's more gracious than we ever expect. His power exceeds our expectations. Is anything too hard for me, too wonderful for me? <clears throat> Despite her initial skepticism, Sarah will come to believe the promise. How do we know that? Well, if we didn't know it by the time we got to Hebrews, we know it then. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, we read, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, hear this, since she considered him faithful who had promised. That's how that story played out. God can do what God will do, what he chooses to do for sure. But in Hebrews, it becomes explicit that the reason that she conceived is that she considered him faithful. She hasn't quite yet by verse 15 for sure. But there is more to the story. There's growth. There's movement. And she has somewhere along the way learned like we will. We, when we learn this lesson that God's power always exceeds our expectations, as Sarah seems to have embraced and understood. <clears throat> when we learn that lesson, we are one step closer in the movement from skepticism to faith. Skepticism is rampant. Uh, it's <clears throat> kind of, why can we believe? How can we believe? What can we trust? That's, that's the debate. That's the discussion. That's the conversation. And we move from skepticism to faith. There is a movement. Sometimes it's gradual. But even when it's gradual, there becomes a moment where something has changed. And it's you. It's a change that God works in us, to be sure. But there is a moment where you have moved from doubt and skepticism to being a man or woman or a child of faith. You've trusted now in something solid. You've trusted in something solid. It's no longer a straw. It's not that it banishes all questions and doubt forever, but what it changes is the, is the platform from which you live your life. And that's the movement that we see in Sarah from this chapter to Hebrews 11, somewhere between the two. <laughs> probably closer to Genesis 18. We're going to read as that story unfolds. When Isaac is born, that's my guess. When Isaac comes to be, Sarah is a different person. That promise 
that was first whispered to Abraham and he laughed, remember? It now comes to Sarah because she had been unconvinced apparently or maybe had not heard about it. That promise, that has come forth. And for you and me, where is that moment? Because we're not giving birth to Isaac. But there is one who has been born. You see, there was another wife who heard a similar promise. Some of you have already considered that when you heard this passage read. Another miracle conception not based on age because the wife was beyond the years of giving birth, this wife would have no husband. Oh, she was married. But she heard a pronouncement. The angel Gabriel in the sixth month was sent from God to a city of Galilee, a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David, and she and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, <clears throat> and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Oh, that's what Sarah heard. And now Mary is hearing it, but his name will not be Isaac. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will be great and will be called the son of of God, the son of the most high. You see, that's where faith is born in us. That movement from skepticism and faith, that new platform on which we we build our lives is the one who was born to Mary born to us through Mary, the one who came to us. It is upon him, an empty tomb and a resurrection that we trust our lives. We build our lives on that solid foundation. And that's what we circle back to week after week where we're remembering and reminding and and celebrating and delighting in the one who delights in us, who came into a broken world, who's, who's... who demonstrated the reality that God's power always exceeds our expectations. What were the expectations when Mary gave birth to Jesus? Israel was longing. I mean, we we mark that every Advent, right? The longing, the come long-expected Messiah. Michael Card helps us with his words, with the words from his song, The Promise. The Lord said when the time was full, he would shine his light in the darkness. He said a virgin would conceive and give birth to the promise. For a thousand years, the dreamers dreamt and hoped to see his love. But the promise showed that their wildest dreams had simply not been wild enough. God's power always exceeds our expectations. Our wildest dreams are not wild enough. And God comes in to a broken world with a promise and with an offer extending his love to you. Jesus took our sin of disbelief, our doubts, our hesitations, our reluctance, our laughter the secrets of our hearts. He took them all in. 
and paid the penalty and died the death that was ours. He took that in. And it's not just for Abraham and Sarah. You know, our New Testament reading this morning from Romans 4. Go back and, not now, but go back and look at that again as you ponder this story later. But here's some, here are the next words beyond what we read today in Romans 4. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. You and me. They weren't just for Abraham. They were for you and me. They were for us as well. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And when we recognize that the God who makes promises fulfills those promises ultimately and fully and always in Christ, that we have a platform on which we stand because it's a person. It is a person. It's not just a posture or a platform. It is a person. And we end up wanting to serve the one who has served us. You know, that lavish meal that Abraham prepared that he didn't know who he was serving. When you begin to see the gospel clearly, you want to prepare a meal for him. You want, to, you want to become that one who's, whose life is centered now around serving the one who has served you fully and completely. Another song, and we'll end with this. <clears throat> William Cooper's love constrained to obedience helps us when he says and reminds us to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. We choose to love and serve the one who lavishes his love and grace and occasionally a mild rebuke, but always attached to a gracious and loving, fulfilled promise. It's been fulfilled. It's got your name on it. It's yours. Father, would you... Help us to take hold of by faith that reality that there is an inheritance kept for us. That there is a promise that you have fulfilled. That there are secrets of our hearts that do not undo us. They do not stand between us and a God who has paid the penalty for our transgressions. And in him we have life and hope and joy. And we have that peace. The peace that comes from you. And only from you. Thank you that you have dealt fully and finally with our needs, with our shame, with our guilt. And have taken those away. And clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. And granted us every blessing in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.